Hey guys, it is Matt Whitmore once again with my better half, Keris Marsden. Good morning. How are you doing, Keris? Fine, thank Good. you. <laughs> uh, this is episode nine, guys. Thank you very much for tuning in. And this is an incredibly exciting episode for us because not only have we got a great guest on who is the awesome Brooks Cubic, it's actually going to give us a chance to have a good old catch up with him because we haven't spoken to him for a long time. So uh, we'll be having a good old bit of banter on this episode. But before we start, I'm going to in uh, well, actually, I'm going to let Brooks introduce himself because there's a lot of people that probably don't know who he is. Some of you that are interested in the iron game or the strength game will probably know very well who he is. But uh, Brooks, firstly, uh, hello, matey. How are you? I'm, I'm well, and I uh, hope everyone uh, listening to this is well, and I hope the two of you are doing well. And, and particularly, I hope Hamish is doing really well. Yeah. Ha- Hamish is actually uh, sound asleep right now, <laughs> which is a good thing, because yeah. normally he's tearing around like a lunatic. We, we knackered him out this morning with a long walk. Big long walk. Uh, so our plan has worked perfectly right now. <laughs> but yeah, Brooks, um, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast, mate. It's an absolute pleasure. It's a real thrill for me. I'm really happy about it awesome so brooks uh, before we start getting into some stuff matey why don't you just uh, tell our listeners essentially who brooks cubic is in a nutshell and, and what he's all about okay i'm a 57 year old weightlifter and uh an author of informational books uh, on on weightlifting and strength training but i'm one of the people who really got the the current what i refer to as functional fitness movement going there was a time when most of what weightlifting or weight training was all around the world was working out on exercise machines. Or if you were using barbells and dumbbells, um, you were doing uh, basically a bodybuilding routine. People were interested in training for a look. Uh, There was a phrase that was thrown around called cosmetic bodybuilding. Not interested in building real strength, not interested in function, but interested in a particular type of in vogue, Appearance, and if you're interested in health and fitness, you know those were your options, and it was really difficult to find your way to really heavy-duty strength training with barbells, dumbbells, and other resistance tools. I won't even mention kettlebells because although kettlebells have been around forever, this was before they became popularized and before they were mass marketed and mass produced, and so we didn't have kettlebells. I grew up reading the bodybuilding magazines as a kid, following the bodybuilding uh, routines, uh, which were useless. I got <laughs> nowhere. And, and gradually, over time, I, I, I got into some of the, uh, the older magazines, Iron Man magazine, and their teaching, the writing and teaching of Bradley J. Steiner and Perry Rader, really got me away from the, uh, you know, the muscle magazine world and the muscle magazine routines. And I started to learn how to train, and I started to study how to train, and really became interested in effective, old-school, functional strength training. I won a number of Kentucky State and regional powerlifting championships, and in the bench press, which was my best of the three powerlifts, I won five United States national championships in my weight class, either 198 or 220, and my age group, again, sub-masters. Um, in one competition, uh, I set uh, American age group records in the bench press and, and even age group world records in the bench press. So, well, What was, was the bench press, Brooks? I'm, I'm sure people there would love to know. <laughs> I want to know. My best lift in competition was 407 pounds. And this was um, the, the really old-fashioned single-ply bench press shirts that didn't give you very much support. No other support gear, and uh, a competition lift with a dead pause at the chest. So, just to uh, do a little conversion there, because uh, we, well, most people tend to work in kilos in the UK. So that's that's a hundred and eighty-five kilo bench press. Wow, which is yeah. insanely heavy. After that, I began doing something that has sort of become a trademark for what I do. But I was working with thick bars, thick handled barbells, and I would do those in a power rack. Uh, starting from the bottom, what I call the bottom position bench press. And you want to do that anytime you're hand, handling a thick-handled barbell uh, in the bench press. You want to be in a power rack with the pin set to catch the bar because obviously when it's that big, there is a possibility that it would slip out of your hands. So 
I'd get the barbell set at the bottom. I'd wedge in underneath it. It's very tight against the chest. I'm all underneath it. And from a dead stop at the bottom, I'd push it up to arm's length to, to finish the lift. And I get up to um, 197.5 or 200 kilos in the bottom position bench press with wow. a three-inch bar. No bench shirt, no, no wrist wraps, no nothing. So that was probably the best benching that I ever did. How old were you again when you did this? Gosh, I was just a youngin back then. That was um, in the 31 to 35 period of my life. Oh, wow. So we, I, I'm just entering that now. So <laughs> <laughs> peak performance age. <laughs> and were you doing this full time at that point? Was this like training was your career or was this on, in addition to another career or job as well? Well, that's a good question because a lot of people uh, think that you need to train full-time. My training, when I was pushing up to the, the bench press numbers that we just discussed, and you know, as I said, winning five national championships in the U.S. in the bench press and setting records and you know, things like that, my training was three days a week, and most workouts lasted about one hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes. Some workouts were as short as 45 minutes. Wow, Matt's nodding his head really vigorously in agreement here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do, three days. <laughs> and, and in answer to your question, um, I went to law school here in the United States after going to college. Got out and, and was working as a lawyer at a large law firm here in Louisville. I was working 50, 60, 70 hours a week uh, as a lawyer. Wow. Um, I mean, I was, I was just extremely busy, exceptionally, insanely busy. And I was finding the time to train on top of that and to train really hard and really seriously. The thing that made the difference was when I trained, it was training time, and, and it still is. There's no talking, there's no joking, there's no kidding, there's no nothing other than focused, intense training. And you, you, you still train in your garage, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I finished a workout last night. We're, we're having a, a bit of a cold spell, so it's, it's really cold <laughs> in the evening. And um, I was out there in, in double layer, wet clothes, uh, out on the platform doing clean jerks. So I was, I, you know, I was still, I'm still doing that, and uh, you know, I, I train alone. Uh, I like it that way. It lets me focus, it lets me concentrate. And there are no distractions, and it's just, you know, 60 minutes of me and the barbell. Um, and that's a pretty good 60 minutes. It tires both of us out. Just going back in time, back to the powerlifting days, um, my bench press workouts were often as short as five or six sets. Okay. I would do 135 pounds for either five reps or one rep, as I felt, to warm up. Immediately follow, or followed after a very short rest, basically just load the bar with uh, 225 pounds or approximately 100 kilos for one rep, followed by 315 pounds or, oh, what would that be? That'd be about uh, 140, 145 kilos for one rep. I'd add another 50 or 60 pounds, call it 20 or 25 kilos, and do one rep, and then I'd go for something in the 400-pound, 185, you know, 182.5, 185 kilo range. If I was really feeling good, I'd do one more with another 10 to 20 pounds or five kilos. was five or six progressively heavier single reps working up to one really heavy single. And I would do that once a week. I had three workouts that I would follow. I used what was called a divided workout system. Um, squats and curls on one day. Uh, pull downs or pull ups or bent over rowing and the bench press on another day and deadlifts or partial deadlifts in the power rack, and a pressing exercise um, on day three. Some days I would also work in uh, presses, which I'd usually do 
on the day that I did squats and curls, do um, squats, close grip, bench press, and curls. Uh, but basically, those were my three workouts, and it was extremely successful. I gained about 30 or 40 pounds of muscle. Uh, I'll let you do the kilo conversion on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I gained 30 or 40 pounds of muscle uh, over a period of a couple of years. Got enormously stronger. Um, do you know, Brooks, it's really interesting because I actually came across your book, uh, Dinosaur Training, a few years ago now. And I'll be honest with you, before I got that book, I'd never heard of you or your training methods, etc. And, uh, you know, as I love training and heavy lifting, etc., I purchased the book and had a good read. And that was the first thing that I kind of noticed was with, with the nature of your approach was that it was a very, very simple one. It wasn't complicated at all, um, very simple rep ranges. And, and like you said, you know, the volume of exercises uh, in a session compared to, you know, the likes of bodybuilding workouts, circuit training, etc., was was very, very, uh, well, well, was much, much less. Um, and it was something that at first it, I had to kind of get my head around a little bit because I was used to doing like multiple sets, multiple exercises, you know, really high intensity. Um, and I came across your uh, your kind of five by five approach, you know, five sets of five reps. And I really quite liked the idea of that. Um, and I applied it to my training. And you mentioned earlier about packing on muscle, etc., which and which is what I wanted to highlight because typically people are led to believe nowadays that heavy lifting doesn't build muscle. You know, in order to build okay. muscle, it's all about hypertrophy, eight to twelve repetitions, yada yada, whatever it is. But I just wanted to kind of share with people that when I started on this five by five, um, I loved it, absolutely loved it. I loved the nature of the training. I loved lifting heavy. And I actually went from, uh, you know, deadlift, powerlifting exercise were never really my strong point. I was more of an intensity guy and rugby and sprinting. But I kind of got into it, the benching, the deadlifting, the squats. And I went from being able to do 180 kilo deadlift for five reps to 230 kilo deadlift for five reps in actually a very, very short space of time. Um, and I couldn't believe it. And sometimes I used to surprise myself uh, just how much weight I was packing on the bar each week. And I honestly put it down to obviously the nature of the training, but because of the nature of the training, I was training less often. I was allowing greater rest in between. And I was actually only training twice a week, Brooks. I was doing a Monday and a Friday session purely, oh, wow. purely because my, my workload was pretty high at the time. But in between, you know, I'd stretch, I'd go for walks, etc. Um, but not only did I put on weight on every single lift, I was actually able to put on about three and a half to four kilos of, of lean muscle as well, which, which was because I wasn't even trying to do that, which is the best thing. So I think it's so important to highlight that lifting heavy has a huge role in gaining muscle. Well, it, it, it really does. And it, it, it's absolutely laughable to me. You know, the, the belief that people have that you need to do high reps, high sets to build muscle mass. I, I mean, that, that is completely wrong. It's a complete fallacy. <clears throat> and, you know, basically it's one of those urban myths. And it's, you know, it started with the bodybuilding magazines. It continues to this day on the Internet, on the bodybuilding forums and, and so on. And, you know, everybody and their brother thinks that you have to you know, pump, 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 and you have to just do, you know, super high rep workouts, you know, 10 sets of 10 or whatever to build muscle mass. What they don't know, because they didn't grow up seeing it and they have not gone back and read the old magazines and the courses and studied what made people strong back in the day and what made them big back in the day. What they don't know is that the high rep workouts that they are doing used to be what were recommended for losing weight. Well, and the okay. reason is they tear you down. You burn calories, you tear down the muscle fibers, you get smaller. They are definition training programs. They're not mass building programs. The mass building programs back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, even into the 1970s when we 
still had some degree of, of sanity about our training, at least if you looked in the right places. <laughs> the muscle mass programs were sets of three, sets of five, sets of six. Five times five was real popular. Six times six was real popular. And anything over that, you were moving into, um, you know, in, into a weight-losing program, into a tearing down, into a definition-building program. And, and it's hilarious to me that the programs that people used to become leaner and more defined, and by the way, smaller, and often weaker, are the same programs that people are using today to try to get bigger and stronger. And that's why so many people don't succeed. Um, to get bigger, to get stronger, you absolutely need to do heavy weights, low reps on the basic compound exercises. Squats, deadlifts, bench press, standing press, rowing or pull-ups. I mean, you know, those are the meat and potatoes of getting bigger and stronger. In 1995, I retired from powerlifting and bench press competition. And one of the reasons that I did was that I'd been writing magazine articles for a little magazine uh, called Hard Gainer Magazine. I, I was getting a lot of positive feedback on my magazine articles. I could see that they were helping people. And I really wanted to put it all together into a book. Uh, so not having any idea what I was doing, I, I sat down in my, quote, spare time, so to speak. Remember, I was working 50, 60 hours a week on the law job, so there was not a lot of spare time. And I started writing what I thought would be a little course, you know, something that you would uh, photocopy and staple together and, and maybe sell to people or, or just give away or something. I, I, I didn't know what, but I, I was thinking 30, 40, 50 pages. I started typing. Well, the next thing you know, I, I've got a 450-page manuscript. Yeah, we, we, we know that feeded. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't know how well you guys type, but... Well, Keris types I, quite well. I'm, I'm, I'm shocking. <laughs> I, I learned to type when I was in high school. I, I was a wrestler in high school. And um, so typing class was during wrestling season. And, you know, as a wrestler, you know, you know from rugby, you're always banged up, right? You know, so my, my, my fingers are sprained. And, you know, I've got two <laughs> fingers taped together. And, you know, I'm sitting there trying to do this typing thing and it's not working I might as well try to type with my elbows <laughs> the only the only way I passed the class is that the the teacher was one of the football coaches so he let me slide because I was one of the athletes you know but anyhow so I type like 20 words a minute you know, I'm a hunt and peck two-finger typist so for me to get to 450 pages was was like that took a long time <laughs> And, um, you know, then, you know, so, so now I'm at the point of, I can't just make photocopies of this thing. You, you know, it, it's too expensive and it's too big. You can't bind it. What do you do? Well, now I've got to get a book and, you know, I've got to publish it as a book. And, you know, there were no eBooks back then. This was before the internet. You know, there was a time when there was no internet. Yeah, and some of us actually remember it. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I had to try to figure out, okay, now I've got to get a book published and jump through hoops and basically ended up taking my life savings at age 35, 36, 37, I guess it's like 30, age 38, 39, um, take my life savings and use it to publish a book called Dinosaur Training, Lost Secrets of Strength and Development. And, you know, the books are printed and they're shipped to me. And I've got 3,000 of these books. And I have an ad in a little magazine called The Iron Master, which had a circulation probably of just a couple hundred readers. And I had not told my wife. <laughs> I was going to ask, did she agree to you funding this with your life savings, actually? 
That's quite were, were, were they her step. life savings as well? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, well, it was. I, I was the one who was working, so it was it was my money. I thought. Oh, fair um, enough. That's fine. I, I'm, we're gonna boy. We're gonna get a lot of a lot of feedback from from folks about that saying <laughs> crazy and it was unfair. But um, I um, I didn't tell her until we went to the post office and collected about twenty or thirty envelopes with checks in them. <laughs> and what you know, I, I took her out to breakfast and sat down and said, I've got something to tell you, but I want to show you something first. And I showed her, you know, twenty or thirty envelopes with checks for the book. Very clever. Very wise. Show her the money first. <laughs> yeah. Good move. It, it, it worked. It worked. Um, we, we are, we are long since divorced. My current wife, Trudy, would never tolerate such shenanigans. <laughs> the book business started out in, you know, a totally accidental way. I was able to sell all 3,000 of those books within the first year. Good man. Cover the, cover the printing costs and have enough money to do a second edition. So I did a second edition. And was that and all kept... through word of mouth? Did it mainly spread sort of friend tells friend that way, that way or through gyms or... It, it spread by word of mouth, and it spread through a very small network of little magazines that were about old-fashioned, old-school strength training. Brooks, if you don't mind me asking, matey, because you mentioned earlier, like there's, it was back then you, you, you said there was quite a small niche for that kind of thing, whereas now kind of so-called strongman training, strength training, seems to be coming much more popular is there a is there a re- reflection of that in in book sales today? Bearing in mind it was a book you wrote a while back. Um, in my in my books or in other books? In your books, in in like the dinosaur training books, it's certainly a book that I recommend to a lot of people because it, it inspired me a hell of a lot. Um, and I think what I liked the most was the fact that you know you were simply just a guy who was a lawyer, had a job, worked long hours like most of us do. Yet had a passion and a hunger for just lifting heavy and and the, and the strength game and you know so I just wondered if there was a reflection in book sales today, bearing in mind that there is there seems to be a bit of a, a trend towards like strongman and strength training now. Dinosaur training talked about things that at the time were not revolutionary because they'd been around for a long time, but they just had not come into common acceptance. Um, Single rep training, power rack training, lifting heavy, awkward objects such as heavy sandbags, barrels, um, you know, everything that, that is part of a functional strength type workout. A lot of what you see in the CrossFit gyms or the other box gyms, uh, a lot of what you see in the athletic uh uh, training programs at colleges and universities and, and for professional athletes, um, a lot of that really started to become popularized in dinosaur training. And the book, right now, it's, it's, it's funny. It was viewed as over-the-top, crazy, nutty, nutty, insane stuff. You know, and people would write, you know, man, this guy lifts barrels, he lifts sandbags, he lifts you know, heavy metal objects. He has steel suitcases and he uses them to do the farmer's walk. That's crazy. He uses thick-handled barbells, three-inch barbells, two-inch barbells. Man, that guy is nuts. Okay? There was a lot of that. And now, that stuff is mainstream. Yeah, everyone's yeah, doing it. Say, there's been a resurgence Everyone's doing recently. it. I, I mean, I drive home from work and I pass... A box that has a bunch of young men and young women out in the street with the same stuff, the same implements, the same tools that I wrote about in Dinosaur Training in 96, and I was viewed as crazy for writing about it. But now, you know, everyone is realizing that functional strength training is where it's at. Brooks, um, what, what's your opinion on women? We, we chatted a little bit about... Um... I, I, I like them. I'm in favor of them. <laughs> <laughs> women training in this manner, because we chatted a bit on the course about, you know, what, what your wife Trudy does, for example, in her routine. I, I mean, is she sort of 
in the garage with you? I know you said train alone, actually, but is she doing a similar thing to you or, or not? Are you not sort of fan of, of, or do you not advise women to follow this sort of routine? Well, a couple of questions there, so let me break them down. Um, I, I, I think that women doing real-world functional strength training is one of the best things that has hit the iron game in the last I don't know how long. I, I mean, it is absolutely awesome. And quite frankly, um, the women are pushing the functional strength training idea so far so fast, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and it is exactly what they should be doing. You know, again, I remember back in the day, women's bodybuilding, you'd walk on stage in a, in a string bikini and high heels. <laughs> That's still going and, on today. <laughs> you know, and there were women who would, there, there were photos of women, quote, training in high heels. <laughs> I can't even I, walk in them, let alone train in them. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was nuts. And, you know, you know it, the idea was that women would use very light weights, you know, two pound, four pound, five pound dumbbells. Don't go up to 10 pounds, you might hurt yourself. A lot of exercise machines don't do anything heavy. And it really, it, it, I, I will be quite honest with you, much of it comes down to the glutes. This is my theory. And, and you know, you guys can like edit this out if. <laughs> no, if, I, wanna, if, I want everyone to hear this bit. <laughs> but, you know, every woman in the world wants to tone her glutes. Okay? Yeah. She wants to look good. From, you know, when, when viewed from behind. In a gym. And the, the guys are typically in favor of this as well. <laughs> the exercises that are best for that effect happen to be the two best functional strength exercises there are, the deadlift and the squat. Oh. I thought it was bicep curls and calf raises. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, other, the other thing that is absolutely incredible for building you know really good looking and really strong glutes is Olympic weightlifting and those were the things that women never did basically were not allowed to do and instead they were put on leg extension machines and leg curl machines and something called a glute buster where you would be on your hands and knees and sort of do like a reverse like a donkey, donkey kick. Donkey kick. Yeah. Up. Yeah, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, like Jane yeah. Fonda style stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. It was, you know, the Jane Fonda workout. And it never got anywhere. It was self-defeating. You know, and now women are doing powerlifting, Olympic lifting. They're squatting. They're deadlifting. And they're getting great results. They're not looking manly. They're looking like women. They're looking beautiful. And it's the result of much heavier training than before with an emphasis not on repping out and, you know, supposedly burning fat or flab, as it used to be called, not on toning up, but on building strength. And, and it's just absolutely incredible and empowering. And, you know, it really, it really is impressive and it's a really... It's it's a re it's a sea change, and it's a really really good thing. Um, Karis, going to your, your your question about Trudy, um, our first Christmas together, Trudy's first Christmas gift was a women's Olympic barbell. Oh. <laughs> what 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 oh, is yeah. what is the difference between a women's and a men's? It's got to be thinner, surely. It's a little bit thin, a little bit lighter, a little bit thinner um, because of the smaller size of most women's hands. Yeah, okay. And, then, and that's all. It's simply, you know, you want a good secure grip, so you want a little bit thinner bar for, for most women. So, but was she, um, happy, was she happy with that as a present or slightly insulted? <laughs> uh, we 
got married not long after that. Okay, so I she bet. was happy. <laughs> yeah, she was, she was happy. That was like one of the best presents ever. Um, <laughs> so she's got her barbell that she uses out in the garage on our lifting platform. Um, you know, she does Olympic lifting. Uh, she's got kettlebells. She's got dumbbells. She's got an auxiliary gym down in the basement. She does regular lifting on. She's got a trap bar. She likes trap bar deadlifts. Uh, she sometimes moves her auxiliary gym up into the living room. Uh, and she'll sometimes go down to the park and, and She's also got, currently I think it's one, but sometimes it's as many as three different gyms that she goes to. She likes variety. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm the same. She goes lots of different places and trains at home, but, you know, her training is similar to mine. It's, It's basic stuff. It's training for strength and it's training for function. Um. I wouldn't mind moving on to some nutrition stuff now. I mean, I could honestly chat to you all day long about training. It'd be really cool to chat to you about nutrition because it was it was a surprise to us when we... Because even though we've been following you since I purchased your book a few years back, I've only ever really known you as, you know, a guy who just likes to lift heavy. And little did we, little did we know that you're actually really big on nutrition yourself. And when we met you last year, or was it the year before... Uh, yeah, two years ago. You know, we actually yeah, we actually realised we had a, a a fair whack in common when it came to nutrition and more importantly, like the sourcing of food. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of like what your approach to to nutrition is? In you know, to support the fact that you know you do lift heavy and you know you are now pushing towards your late fifties and still like to lift pretty heavy in your garage. So, how, how do you? Uh, to change your nutrition to you know to 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 support that. Okay. Well, I follow um, uh, what is what what could could sort of generically be described as um, a low carb or controlled carb paleo diet. Uh, no grains. Uh, virtually no dairy. Uh, it's basically meat and salad or meat and green vegetables. Um, Other than eggs, I have eggs for breakfast almost every day. I'm very careful about the sourcing of the food. Whole backyard is a garden. Whole side of the house is a garden. We garden year-round using a uh, small homemade greenhouse and um, what are called low tunnels, uh, hoop houses uh, or hoop tunnels covered with... um, heavy plastic over our garden boxes so that we can actually keep growing through the wintertime. So fresh greens, fresh vegetables straight from the garden, and anything that we don't grow, uh, we get from local growers at a local farmer's market. All of the the meat is from local growers. It's uh, free-range, grass-fed. It's from farms 20, 30, 40 miles away from Louisville. Um, that's the, the only kind of meat that I will eat if I have any choice in the matter. And, you know, sometimes if you're traveling or, uh, you know, you're at a restaurant or something, you, you, uh, you don't have those options. But when I'm home and I can control the source, uh, I go for the absolute top quality meats. So when you're at the um, farmer's market, a question we get asked a lot um, and we try and um, give different answers is when people are shopping at farmer's markets or butchers, what questions should they ask um, about meat and poultry, but also even about fruits and vegetables? Because often um, we know that the organic standard is quite expensive. um, So farmers won't pay it, but that doesn't mean that they're not doing some great stuff in terms of avoiding pesticides and fertilizers and things like that so what questions would you generally ask um, producers before buying well what 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 i do i i there, there are a number of farmers markets here in louisville um we're very lucky because we have a huge farm to table movement and a lot of local producers a lot of farmers markets 
Um, we're actually one of the, the top cities in the United States for the number of urban gardens. And, and we, we, we even have urban chickens. I mean, I mean there's, there, there's a guy who raises chickens just three blocks down the alley. Um, I, I, I mean, we, we've got a real good infrastructure for local foods. So what I do when I go to the farmer's market is talk with the farmers and, and just get a sense of, you know, just how do you get into this? Or, you know, boy, that's, that's, that's interesting. Or, you know, what, you know, boy, that, you know, that's really good looking spinach. What do you do to get it looking so good? And the answer is, you know, well, it's, it's, it's the dirt. Really? What do you do? Well, da, 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 da. Or I, I do this or I do that, or it's the seeds or, well, I didn't have any luck last year, but this year it's doing really well and we're using a different fertilizer. What are you using? You know, well, it's fish-based. Oh, okay. You know, so so it's natural. Yeah, yeah, it's natural. And, you know, we can't, we can't say it's organic because we haven't gone through the certification. It's too expensive, but it's pretty good. You know, wink, wink. Mm-hmm. Now, those are the conversations that you sort well, of you, have. Do you not find books like? Because we've mm-hmm. always said this that people don't ask enough questions. You know, like we we ask like I mean we we actually I, I think start to annoy people when we're at the farmers market or we're in a different area and we visit the local butchers or something. But you know, I think we have every right, as I'm sure you will agree, to know exactly where that produce has come from, how it's been fed and raised, etc. But I think most people now are, are, are somewhat just maybe embarrassed to ask, afraid to ask in case they're going to upset somebody, whereas our advice always is ask as many questions as you need to get an understanding of, of where that produce has come from, right? That's, that's absolute, absolutely right. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm in the fortunate position of being able to buy straight from the producer or straight from the grower. And, and you can't beat that. And... You know, I have conversations with different producers or growers, and, you know, I now buy all of my meat for the week. And, and that's a lot of meat. So, you know, I'm probably, aside from a restaurant, I'm probably their number one customer. <laughs> you know, I, I buy exclusively from one guy because we've had conversations, you know, like along the lines of, we're in the middle of a, a real bad heat spell in the summertime, right? And I say, how, you know, you know, how are the critters holding up? And he says, well, they're they're doing well. You know, I've got some shade set up for them. I'm doing this for them. Now, I'll tell you the one thing that makes them real happy. What's that? Kelp. Really? Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, I said they love it. It's it's the best thing for them. It, you know, in, in the hot weather. It's, it's just absolutely wonderful, and you know, yeah, it's expensive, but you know it, it, it's the right thing to do. And you know, I have the conversation, we talk, and I find out that he has bought a thousand dollars worth of kelp to feed to his cattle, to add to the cattle feed. Um, That's and, amazing. And, yeah. and, and to, you know, he thinks it's better and healthier than just loading them up on salt. He doesn't want to give them antibiotics. He doesn't want to give them chemicals. But he's found that the kelp in the really hot weather is good for them. So he he buys a thousand dollars worth of kelp. Wow! And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is a man that I want to support. You know, I want to help him fund the purchase of kelp for his cattle, so that he doesn't have to give them chemicals. He doesn't have to, for example, dope them up to keep them just kind of lying around dumb and stupid in the hot weather. Instead, he's got something that is perfect for their bodies in our extreme summertime Kentucky weather. Um, You know, so that conversation led me to think, you know, this is a guy that I want to be working with. You know, and when you eat real food and you start to see those differences and you have the conversations and you find out, that these are people who are spending money to really get the number one uh, foods and and food supplements for their animals. Those are the people you want to support. And, you know, my choice in life, 
I could go to a health food store and load up on food supplements. You know, I could buy kelp supplements. I could buy whatever. Or I could take the same money and I could buy the locally produced grass-fed beef and the eggs from the free-range chickens, the happy chickens, and I can let them be the ones to buy the kelp supplements, and I can support that purchase by my purchases of food from them, and that's what I choose to do. It's, it's interesting that you said that because we often have to highlight to clients that we work with that they invest so much in other areas of their life to make themselves look good, like their hair or their clothes, or as you've just said, nutritional supplements. And, you know, and, and that's at the expense of investing in good food. So they're still buying sort of cheap eggs and cheap meat from a supermarket. Um, and when we question that, they say, because it's expensive. And Matt's quite observational, and he'll often sort of pick out the fact they're wearing a designer T-shirt and <laughs> explain that they're investing in completely the wrong area you know, of their lifestyle, but yeah. Funnily enough, I, I had an email just the other day from someone who was looking into doing a kind of like, a, they, they said they wanted to buy our book and start a more kind of paleo way of life. But he um, he actually, and he, to his words exactly were, um, I'm assuming you have to be pretty well off in order to follow a paleo diet. Um, I don't see it as something that is um, affordable. And, I, you know, I, had a, I, I replied to this guy and, you know, because Keris and I are, are, are far from well off, you know, many of the clients that we work with I don't think would consider themselves well off. But I think you you manage when you want to manage, you know. I think you, you'll invest the money where you prioritise, you know, and, and we prioritise our health, we prioritise good quality food and you know if, if we did have the decision whether or not we bought a really good quality steak over you know buying a nice new pair of trousers I, I know where our money would go and I think that's more a mindset thing than anything else and I think it's really important to try and get that message across in that you know when people say oh no I can't afford it it's too expensive a lot of the time it's that kind of barrier that they've set up for themselves because more often than not we've found that when people look a little bit deeper and actually make a little bit of an effort when it comes to sourcing their food, there isn't always that much in it. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say it's cheaper, but there are instances where it is if you do a little bit of research. I mean, um, I get, or sorry, we get um, really good quality chicken from our butchers, which, like you mentioned earlier, you know, these chickens are predominantly pasture-fed, free range but you know our butchers isn't really willing to pay for the certification of organic but um the price that we get the chickens for are actually less than organic free range chickens from the supermarket which are grain fed all the time you know yeah it may well be organic grain uh but but we're getting chickens that are cheaper they taste better they cut uh, they cut better and they keep better and, but that's only because we've gone out of our way to kind of make that comparison. And that's kind of like a big thing for us is that it's not just about the, you know, what food you eat. It's, it's where that food has come from and, and delve a little deeper and you'll find that actually it's not always going to break the bank as much as you think. If someone were to keep a food diary for a week or a month or, you know, whatever period of time they need to do, keep a food diary and then keep a cost diary and really figure out where's your nutrition coming from and how much are you paying for the really good nutrition. Where are you getting your high-quality protein, your high-quality fats, your vitamins, and your minerals from? What, what foods? And how much are you paying for those? And then how much are you paying for everything else that is basically empty calories, useless food? And, and what you'll find if, if you go through that exercise is that real food is cheaper than the highly processed junk that most people fill up on. You know, simple example. Um, go to the supermarket and you, uh, you buy a couple of pizzas and you come home and you have pizza. That 
you know, some people think, well, that's cheap, it's fast, it's convenient. Number one, you're not getting any nutrition, so it's, it's a zero on the nutrition scale. But number two, you could have bought meat and vegetables and had a good meal for the same price. We had a, um, we had a family uh, dinner. It was celebrating someone's birthday. whole bunch of family members come in, and Trudy sends me out, you know, because most, you know, most, most people don't eat as we do. So she sends me over, and I'm supposed to pick up some pre-prepared, pre-cooked macaroni and cheese, green beans. Uh, you know, she said, get some, uh, get some meatloaf or get some this or some of that. You know. And, you know, I, I, I paid for that, which I considered basically junk food. You know, I paid the same that I would pay for three or four days of high-quality, grass-fed, locally-sourced meat, eggs, and fresh vegetables. And, you know, and I was looking at this, and I was thinking, you know, I just paid X amount of money for zero nutrition that, you know, is, is one big family get-together dinner versus three or four days of what Trudy and I eat. And, you know, I was like, man, this is crazy. So, Brooks, do you ever have a day where you just say, right, I'm going to order a pizza or, um, you know, any sort of, you know, you hear of people having cheat meals or, you know, um, you know, resting from their sort of clean nutrition. Do you ever do that? Or is it just, unless it's macaroni cheese and green beans, <laughs> that's forced on oh, well, you? Actually, actually, I was a very bad host because I, I, I didn't eat that. Oh, wow. Um, I don't like cheat meals. Um, I, part of it. You know, again, remember, I'm 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 almost sixty, and I you know, I'm still out there training hard and heavy on a regular, consistent basis. And for me, the consistency is real important. You know, I try to keep to a regular schedule. I eat pretty much the same thing every day. Not necessarily the same meals, but the same number of grams of protein. And how much is that per, so, per, for your body weight? How much protein would you consume? Uh, about one gram of protein for every pound of body weight or two, two, you know, two grams of protein for every um, kilo. kilo of body yeah. weight. Or, in other words, you know, the, the ratio of grams, grams of protein to body weight is, is basically it's a one-to-one ratio. That is um, far higher than most people eat, but it's also far less than a lot of people say you need. You know, you see a lot of this, you need 300 grams of protein or 400 grams of protein per day, which is, you know, ridiculous. Yeah, we've seen recommendations that are just way beyond anything. I can't even imagine even eating that much protein. <laughs> yeah, know. yeah I, you know, you get to the point where your body can't use it. But, yeah. um, you, you know, you can eat, particularly when you're, when you're training hard and you're rebuilding the muscle tissue after you tear it down in a hard workout, you know, you need lots of good high-quality protein. Um, but to get back to the cheat meals, I, I, or the cheat days, I, I just don't like the, the, I like the consistency. That's very important to me. Um, other people, so, so I don't do the cheat meals or the cheat days. Other people seem to like to have either a cheat meal or a cheat day every once in a while. And, and, and it just seems to, to be better for them. Uh, perhaps it's more psychological than anything else. And it's one of those things where, you know, you need to understand, you know, your own needs and how you work as an individual and working within a, you know, a logical framework in terms of training and, and, and diet and nutrition, you have to find what works for you and, and then stick to it. You know, everything that happens in life involves change, but if you're focused on certain priorities and health and fitness is a priority, as you go through all of those different changes in life, different shifts, you continue to focus on that priority and you continue to find ways to make the priority a reality. Um, you know, and that's just the difference between people who are really committed to something and really want something and people who you know, are doing it because... You know, it's it's January and everyone wants to get in shape and look good for swimsuit season and so on, but they're over it by February. Yeah, I'd agree. I would say things like passion and dedication and also knowledge. 
would really define, you know, sort of how committed someone can be towards towards this. If they actually truly understand how important it is, and often that might come because they end up falling ill and, you know, that, that's mm. that's the way a lot of people arrive at this journey is yes. because their, their health begins to suffer. And then they begin to understand that it has to be prioritised. That's, that's very true. You know, we've got the, the huge ongoing debate here in the U.S. about the... Um, the Affordable Health Care Act and, you know, What, what do you guys have to pay? Is it, is it a monthly... Pardon? Do you guys have to pay monthly, is that right? Or a monthly yeah. insurance now, isn't it? Uh, well, a, a, everybody really in the United States, if you want health insurance, you, you've had to buy it and you pay on a monthly basis and it's extremely expensive. I mean, we're talking yeah. about, you know, for, for family coverage, it's easily 500 to $1,000. Uh, per year, per no per month. What? Wow. Yeah. Per and and then on top of that, you've got co-payments and deductibles, and sometimes your coverage doesn't kick in until you've spent two thousand or twenty five hundred dollars or three thousand or five thousand dollars. Sometimes it only pays eighty percent of the cost of care. That's God. insane. Well, that 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 is the way it is in the U.S. You know, it's it's a real interesting situation almost a national crisis here um and, you know and, and all of us in the the health and fitness um business who are trying to, to help teach people ways to be healthier um in better condition more fit um you know are fighting a you know a very important battle you mentioned um so we briefly touched on like uh, vitamin mineral supplements Okay, so Brooks, you uh, you mentioned on one of your articles or blog posts about um, having cheesecake in your post workout uh, as as, a, as part of a post workout meal. Uh, would you like to expand on that a little bit? Dr. Ken Leesner was a longtime writer for Powerlifting USA magazine. Also writes for Milo magazine. Has written for a number of others, and he would often in the April edition of Powerlifting USA write an article about the superfood of superfoods New York cheesecake (laughs) yay (laughs) and at the end of the article he would say by the way did you realize this is the April issue April Fool's Day ha 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 and um, I have um, borrowed that tradition from Dr. Ken uh, and occasionally, on April 1, I write an article about cheesecake as the superfood and talk about the protein content, the fat content, vitamin and mineral, etc., 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 and get everyone all worked up about it and then say, by the way, do you realize that today is the first day of April? Uh, I, I do that as a tongue-in-cheek way of kind of spoofing or making fun of a lot of the things out there that people do or think about nutrition. Um, And one is the post-workout, or for that matter, the pre-workout meal or or supplementation. Um, Again, I'm in a unique position in that I train in the garage. It's about 30 steps from the garage to the kitchen, and so my real-life post-workout meal is finishing my workout at 7.30 in the evening, walking out of the garage, walking into the kitchen, and smelling whatever it is that Trudy is cooking for dinner. So you, you, you don't have a shake or anything then? I, I, I don't have a shake or anything. Now, you know, if I lived in a different circumstance where from gym to home was an hour and 90 minutes or two hours or whatever, or I worked out earlier in the day and then, then had other obligations before I could eat, then I might have uh, some kind of meal replacement or shake or something. But as it is, I go, you know, straight from workout to... To kitchen. To kitchen, to dining room table, to big plate of food <laughs> pr- pretty quickly. Um now, I, I will say this, that it seems that 
that huge post-workout meal is really, really important. If I were not in a position to do that, I'd certainly explore some kind of, um, you know, shake or other alternative um, to the uh, to the post-workout dinner that I'm able to enjoy. And so would you have like an extra meal on training days or you just make your plate a little bit bigger? How would you supplement on a training day in terms of food? I, I usually... Um, stick to breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, on a training day, I make sure that I have uh, an extra big lunch. And some days, particularly if I know that I'm going to be working a little bit late and the workout may be a little bit later, I may do something around 4 o'clock, you know, some kind of protein source. And do you sort of uh, distinguish between lean and sort of fatty protein around training, or is it just always protein, red meat, bacon? Because some people say leaner meats... Um, post-workout because they're more easy to digest and avoid the fats. Do you do anything like that or not really? I'm on a pretty low-carb diet. Um, I'm actually on a high-fat diet. I tend to, to really need the fat as a calorie source. Yeah. I tend, I tend to crave it. And so I very much like um, a fattier cut of meat uh, with dinner, particularly after a workout. And tend to have the leaner meats at lunch. Uh, but I tend to do something to make sure that I have enough fat in the diet at lunch. So, for example, a hamburger, which, if you're talking about grass-fed beef, is, is pretty lean, actually, and the fat cooks away. So I like to supplement that with bacon because I, I want that extra fat. That's a nice I think I think our listeners would like that, actually. Bacon-filled burgers, yeah. <laughs> no. And what about carbs? Do you have, like, a carb limit, or are you just sort of, like, um, you know, just a small serving a day, you don't really measure? The way I approach carbs in my diet, I don't count them, but I have a pretty good idea of what I'm consuming on a daily basis, and it's it's not very much. Um, again, though, you know, remember, I'm, I'm close to 60. Uh, I'm interested in being... Um, lean, keeping the weight down, you know, so I'm more focused on this than 20 years ago, and certainly more focused on this than when I was in my 20s or my 30s. Um, But basically, uh, I'll have an omelet, you know, four, sometimes five eggs um, with um, usually bacon, (laughs) sometimes mushrooms. Yeah, I I know the listeners like the bacon part. uh, sometimes mushrooms and quite often uh, chopped greens or chopped herbs. Uh, you know, whatever is out there fresh from the garden. Um, usually two cups of that. So if you're doing the math, if you know, if you know how to count carbs and you're doing the math, you're saying, well, okay, that's probably eight to twelve grams of carbs. Yeah. Okay. Lunch is a large serving of meat and a big salad and. By big salad, I'm talking about four, maybe five cups of chopped greens, herbs. Sometimes I add sliced cucumber or, you know, whatever. Um, You know, basically all fresh green vegetables are fair game for salads. So, again, do the math. You're ending up at, you know, 10 or 12 grams of carbs. Dinner is pretty much the same as lunch. But the the daily carb limit is probably in the neighborhood of um, 30 to 50 grams of carbs uh, uh, on average. Well, I mean, because it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, clearly that works for you, you know. So, and and I think that's the the, the most important thing, right? Because there are some people out there that won't do particularly well on a low-carb diet based on their, you know, their metabolism, their genetics, and obviously their energy expenditure, but you know, you know, like you said, you're 57. You've been working at this for a hell of a long time, and and you know that that's what works for you. What works for you at one point in your life may not work as well at a later point. You know, as I get older, I'm, I'm you know, I'm really focused on you know looking at, at long-term health and being able to continue lifting the way I want to lift for a long time. It's something we often see with people as they age and they start thinking, oh well, I, I used to be able to do this. I used to be able to eat that, etc. and I think it's so important that people obviously adapt as uh, as as the years go on, etc. But um, but Brooks, I tell you what, matey, um, I reckon we should wrap it up there. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, matey. 
um, it's just really good to get an insight into the mind of someone who's been doing this for a hell of a long time. And it, it's great to know that someone's as passionate about the food that they eat as well as, you know, what they do in the gym. Because we often find nowadays that the, the training aspect is the easy bit and people tend to neglect the nutrition side of things and how they feed and fuel their bodies and, and wonder why injuries occur as often as they do, etc. So, Brooks, matey, I'm going to say goodbye. A massive, massive thank you. Um, Keris, are you going to... Keris is entertaining Hamish at the moment. He's just come back from a a, <laughs> a quick toilet break, and now he's just going crazy because he's had his he's had his rest, so he's full of energy. Before we do say goodbye, do you want to just tell everybody where they can find more information about you, uh, your blogs, etc.? My first book again was Dinosaur Training: Lost Secrets of Strength and Development, and there are a lot of other books since. There's almost fifteen out right now. Oh wow! And yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of writing, and you can find it at my website, uh, www.brookscubic, that's B-R-O-O-K-S-K-U-B-I-K.com. Uh, a lot of good information there. Sign up for the daily emails. And uh, Matt, I, I want to say to you and Karis uh, and Hamish, uh, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it, and um, you know, keep up the good work. And, uh, you know, we'll have to, uh, you know, get together and uh, do, a, do a seminar sometime uh, either in the U.K. or the U.S. and, you know, make the magic happen. Oh, that'd be an absolute pleasure, mate. I mean, we, we don't need much of an excuse to come over to the States. We, we love it there. So, you know, I'd, I'd be well up for coming to, uh, or is it Louisville you say you are? Louisville, Kentucky. Yep. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. Most excellent. We'll, uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking forward to doing something like that. Awesome. Ivan Brooks, well, uh, listen, matey, thank you so much for giving up your time uh, again. And uh, I certainly hope the, the listeners enjoyed uh, the insight, which I'm sure they will. And uh, I will speak to you, no doubt, very, very soon. Sounds good. Thanks much. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye.